Well, good morning. I invite you to open the Word of God this morning to Daniel chapter 6. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 6, our text this morning is this chapter, verse 1 to verse number 28 of Daniel chapter 6, of which we will read as we go through our, our points this morning in the sermon. Let's open this morning in a word of prayer together. Our Father, indeed, that is our prayer that you would speak through your holy word to us this day. Father, that you would shape and fashion us into your image and likeness. Father, we are in desperate need of you and your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we thank you for your powerful word, your word that is living and active. And so, Father, we pray that your word would do its work in our lives this day. Lord, I pray that you would bring conviction through your word. Pray, Father, that you would bring salvation. Pray, Father, that you would bring encouragement and strength. Father, you know what each of us need, and we pray, Lord, that you would speak through your word to us this day. We thank you for the love that you've shown us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for sending Jesus Christ to come suffer on the cross for us in our place. For in this gospel, we are rescued. We are delivered. It's in Christ's name we ask. Amen. Today we come to what is probably the most well-known account in the book of Daniel. Daniel and the lion's den. It's another wonderful retelling of an event of what God has done for his people. As you know, this happens very late in the life of Daniel. Daniel would have roughly been somewhere around 80 some odd years old when he was lowered down into this den of lions. He'd been living in Babylon now for a very long time. The book began in chapter one, as we saw weeks ago, of these believers, these Jews being taken by a deportation out of the promised land and back to Babylon. Roughly, Daniel was 15-ish years old when that occurred. And now here we are, years and years and years later. Jerusalem had been completely destroyed. The temple had been leveled. The gold things from the temple had been taken away, off, carted off to Babylon. Last week we saw uh, in chapter five, we saw Belshazzar calling for the gold things from the temple to drink uh, out of at their drunken party. And here Daniel is at the end of his life, still in captivity, still in Babylon living in a foreign land, living under a foreign king, living, living under foreign kings. So he went in with Nebuchadnezzar, then Belshazzar, and now Darius, as we see in this chapter. 
no doubt of the faithful remnant, the people who were brought from Jerusalem to Babylon, they were wondering, are we ever going to get back to our homeland? Are we ever going to be able to worship God through the temple again as God has instructed us to worship? Their hope was probably low. They were probably weak. And when hope is low, obedience tends also to be low. Just think of how the many families of Jews living in Babylon during this time, just think of what life would have been like for them. It had been years since they were in Jerusalem, now in Babylon. Again, their temple had been destroyed. They were tempted to give up hope that God would deliver them from exile. Years that occurred, we're coming up on 70 years. They're giving up hope of what God might do. In their eyes, boots on the ground, it looks as though the God of Israel had been defeated by the Babylonians. Now there's just another king coming over them, Darius the Mede, to those faithful Jews living in Babylon. Was it really worth it to teach their kids the Bible? to try to see them grow up in the faith, to teach them the Hebrew scriptures and to teach them about the God who had brought them out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery and freed them and brought them into the promised land? Was it really worth it for them to try and live distinctly as God's people in Babylon? Was it all for naught? Is it worth it? Should they try and fight against sin in their own lives? Should they seek to live in obedience to God whom it seemed had been defeated? Have you ever been there in your life before? Have you ever wondered these things from time to time in your struggle against your sin and living in this sinful world and working hard to live Christ-like in your relationship with other sinners? Do you ever, as the New Testament says, lose heart? To grow weary in being faithful in the land of Babylon? Well, that's the context that Daniel chapter six speaks into. And it's my prayer that it will also speak to us that we will be encouraged by our God, emboldened afresh this day to live in obedience to him. We begin this chapter with Darius the Mede. In fact, we begin in chapter five, verse number 31, where we see that Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. And so we're entering into a different context than as Daniel in this church leads us right into chapter six. And this morning, we're going to walk through Daniel chapter six. And we're going to have six points to try to help us to navigate through this uh, text this morning. Don't tell Pastor Adam I had six points, okay? Six, six points that we're going, that's about two sermons, isn't it? Uh, that we're going to look through to get through 
this passage. So we're going to begin with the first point just to help us to walk through the context of what is taking place in Daniel chapter six. First of all, we see the concept of promotion and jealousy. Promotion and jealousy in verse one to five. So we see Daniel's promotion. Look at, we, look at me, uh, with me at verse one to three of chapter six. It says, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three presidents of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. No doubt Darius had heard about Daniel from the events of chapter five. And when Darius was rearranging things under his command, Daniel was set in a very high position of authority. Darius had 120 satraps to lead the whole kingdom. And then he had three presidents that were over those 120. So they would have uh, 40 people to oversee who were overseeing the whole nation. And verse number two tells us that this was, quote, so that the king might suffer no loss. You see corruption, bribery, dishonesty, fraud, kickbacks, We're all a problem in the bureaucracy of government. You put a bunch of people in control over other people and those who are supposed to lead others tend to look and seek after personal benefits and then they become corrupt. See, the Bible's so out of touch with our modern day life, isn't it? It's hard to imagine what this would be like. But Daniel stood out among them. He was even going to be placed in a position of authority over these other presidents. So as it is, he's standing out among those who have stood out and he's going to be, as it were, second in command. The text tells us, quote, because an excellent spirit was in him. Daniel lived life as a believer. Daniel was honest. Daniel worked hard. He sought to please God in his work above all things, above his commanders. Remember, Daniel knew that ultimately God was in control. You remember as Daniel interpreted that dream from Nebuchadnezzar of the statue. We saw there that Daniel still polished the statue. He knew God's sovereignty did not mean disengagement in this world. He polished the golden head under Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and now he's polishing the chest and arms of silver underneath Darius. But his hope always ultimately was in the Lord, not kings. And so he's doing his work faithfully unto the Lord in the midst of this kingdom. Well, those other two newly appointed presidents didn't like this one single bit They didn't want to have this old exile, this Jew, this goody two-shoe be over them. So we see, secondly, their wicked plans in verse four and five. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault 
because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Wow, how amazing. What a testimony Daniel had. These higher-ups, and we're in political realm here, they couldn't find any dirt on him. Not once had Daniel used the company jet for any personal trips. They couldn't find any fault of bribery against him, of him using his authority to get something personal for his own life and abusing the power that he had in this position of authority. What a testimony. They knew the only way they could get him in, quote, trouble would be to find it in his worship of his God. Now, that's a faithful testimony at the office, isn't it? Not even a smidgen of dirt could be pulled up on this man. But I just want to point one thing out here. Again, I think it's safe to say that Daniel had a great witness to his God in his life. That's obvious. But these people were still not converted by that. You see, it takes the Holy Spirit of God to give new life to dead souls. I say this because I know that you try and live as a witness at work. And we are commanded to do that, to be faithful followers of Christ and how we seek to do that, to live as an example, as a light in darkness. But just be comforted from this text that at the end of the day, God is the one who does the work. That's why we pray. And that's why we give God glory in salvation. I'm not saying here that you should be encouraged to slack in your witness. What I am saying is that as we seek to live faithfully at work, we must trust in God to save and not our pious actions. It might be as you live faithfully to the Lord, you're not seeing your coworkers come to Christ. Well, keep living faithfully to the Lord and keep trusting in him. Even Daniel here, was not able to save his co-workers by his pious actions. Don't grow weary in doing good as a witness in the workplace. Be faithful, trust in God. We see Daniel doing just that here in this text. And it got him enemies. It will most likely get you enemies also. This leads us to the second point here is the plan. In verse six to nine, let's look at it. Verse six begins with, then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Boy, these guys are slick, aren't they? They act like everyone is in unity on this. They're acting like they're wanting to bring the nation together by worshiping the king. Did you catch what they said? 
all the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, etc., had come together on this. That's what they told the king. You know, that's how you get a unanimous vote right there. You don't ask those who would disagree with you to cast a ballot. And you just come and you say, all of us are agreed on this. You see their trickery as they're coming to the king. Verse six says they came, quote, by agreement. You might have a little footnote uh, there in your text. I think it's helpful there. My footnote says came thronging. Another definition of this word is, quote, to gather in a tumultuous throng. You see, and that's the picture of the world coming against the believer. They're gathering, as it were, their forces together and trying to seek to come after this believer. It's just like in Psalm chapter two. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You see, that's how the world comes against the believer. They come thronging against God's children. And this same word is used in verse 11 and in verse 15, where it says they came by agreement. It's a loaded word as they're just coming against God's people. King doesn't see what they're really up to, does he? Emphasis is made upon the primacy of the written laws of the laws of the Medes and the Persians. It's a well-known fact. But what that, that once that is made, it's not to be revoked. We see emphasis of that in the text. It cannot be changed according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Verse number eight. Sounds just like Haman to Mordecai in the book of Esther. Right? A trap has been set. Sounds just like the Pharisees of the New Testament. Made a plan, set a trap to kill Jesus. Send him into a tomb. So that's their plan in verse six to nine. Let's look at the responses here of what happened. So here's the plan. Let's look at Daniel's response and the accuser's response and uh, look at Darius's response. So first look at Daniel's response in verse number 10. This verse is very important to the text. One of the most important verses. Look at what verse 10 says. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Daniel knew what was going on, didn't he? He knew exactly what was going on. He heard about the edict. He knew they were after him. So what does he do? I love it. Here's the key. He did what he had always done. He prayed to the Lord, quote, as he had done previously. What we see here is the super importance of the ordinary. Daniel didn't fall to his knees to pray because of this conspiracy. No, he fell to his knees to pray because that was his routine. The trial didn't phase him as it were because he was grounded in God. 
The accusers thought prayer was Daniel's weakness when in reality it was his greatest strength. Daniel was being obedient to the scripture here as a matter of fact. Why pray towards Jerusalem? Why pray three times a day, you might ask? Well, because of what Solomon had written for exiles to do in the book of 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46 and 51. When Israel was in a foreign land, Solomon instructs them what to do. He instructs them to pray and to pray towards Jerusalem three times a day. Confess their sins that got them there in the first place. Repent and trust in God to answer their prayer. And that's exactly what Daniel is doing here and probably had been doing for years and years and years and years. So the 80-year-old Daniel heard about the strivings of these jealous leaders and he just went to the roof of his house. By the way, the roof in those days are flat roofs, okay? So he went up on the roof. Think of it as a, 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 like a patio sort of thing. There probably would have been lattice, a lattice place with curtains around so that the curtains could be uh, moved to let the breeze uh, come through. And instead of pulling all of these curtains so that he couldn't be seen, he just left them open as he always did. And there for all to see on the top of this roof, he knelt down on his knees three times a day, morning, noon, and evening, to pray to God for repentance and sin and for to bring his people back to the land of promise as he said he would. We see this 80-year-old, white-kneed, calloused man praying to the Lord. His past daily devotion to God kept him present in the future. Kept him present in trials. He couldn't not pray to God. Get this for me. I mean, just Paul, we know he's going into the lion's den. What got him to the lion's den? He would rather be thrown into a den of lions than to not pray. You think about that? He said, I would rather you throw me into a den of lions than for me not to pray to God. That's convicting, isn't it? That's convicting. It's always right to go to God in prayer. I encourage you to do it. If you hadn't been doing it and a trial comes, go to God in prayer. By all means, that is what we are to do. But how wonderful it would be that when trials come upon us in our life, we pray about them just during our normal times because that's exactly what we've been doing. That we just pray to God. I fear sometimes the opposite would be true for some of us. It would have to be the threat of a den alliance to get us to pray. But for Daniel, it's just the opposite. It's truly amazing. That's what got Daniel thrown into a den of lions. He wasn't going to give up praying to God. May each of us be convicted by that in a good way this day, to seek after God in prayer. That's Daniel's response. What was the response of his accusers? We see that in verse 11 to 13. Look at it with me. Then these men came by agreement. There's that word. They came thronging. Just picture a group of people come thronging against him. 
and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. You can almost see it. They're, they're, they're the police, the prayer police, right? And there they are walking and they see him up praying. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Right, so here's his accusers come thronging again and they're ecstatic. You can imagine their voices probably all excited before. King, didn't you say this? Checkmate, game, set, match. We got him now. They finally got this exile from Judah, right? I think that played into it, him being a Jew. I don't think that was the only reason. I think just pure good old jealousy was the main reason these men hated this guy and it added to it that he was an exile. He wasn't even one of us. He wouldn't play our game. And he happens to be a Jew. Now they finally trapped this Christian, this little goody two-shoe. They condemn him before the king. They say, Daniel pays no attention to you. Oh, king, a wonderful king, right? You want to get somebody hacked off, you make it personal, right? You make it personal. It's you, king. They, they don't even pay attention. He doesn't pay attention to you. He doesn't listen to the law, right? You made this law, he doesn't even listen. And he's a repeat offender three times a day. This guy's out of control, king. What's the king's response going to be? He tells us a lot about what he thought of Daniel and Daniel's witness. Look at verse 14 and 15. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement, there's our word again, to the king and said to the king, know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Darius was much distressed, the text says. He was upset. And here we see the main theme of the passage begin to emerge. The theme of deliverance and rescue. You see, all day the king tried to find a loophole. The king tried to rescue Daniel. He tried to deliver Daniel. You see, the kings of this world are good and fine, but they will never be able to ultimately give you deliverance from your greatest need. They can never ultimately rescue you. And those in positions of prominence and authority in this life that seem so powerful, they're not able to rescue and deliver. And we see that here. The king is trying to rescue Daniel, trying to save him. But we know as faithful followers of God, there is one who can. There is a God who is mighty to save. There is a God who paid our debt in full there is a God who came to deliver on that rugged cross. The kings and rulers of this world and of this day, not so much, not so much. 
This brings us to the fourth point, and that is the judgment. The judgment, verse 16 and 18. Here comes the king's verdict. His hands were tied, as it were, and here's what he says in verse 16 to 18. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting No diversions were brought to him, and slep fled from him. Darius here, instead of losing uh, face, had Daniel thrown into the den of lions. Did you catch that theme of deliverance again with what he said to Daniel as he was throwing him in? May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Darius wasn't able to deliver him, so he asked that Daniel's God would. A stone was rolled over the tomb, I mean the den, and the den of lions was sealed so that no one would tamper with it. Sounds a little familiar. Now, maybe you might be wondering like I have, just thinking aside of the text, what's a king doing with a den of lions in the first place, Right? Reminds me of an old James Bond movie with a trap door or something with sharks or vipers or something like that and you just cast, uh, you know, whoever you want down into it. Well, this was most likely here. This is an old cistern, a cavern, of, cavern type of place in the ground. You could use it for water to store water in. So think like below ground with a, a hole on top of it lead, leading into some sort of Hershey Kiss looking big, big thing, you know, something like that put prisoners down there. Kings in that day would collect animals, kind of like a zoo, to show their power and to show their might. And so they would gather animals from around the lands. And what better way, of course, to show power than having a den of lions? And it was used for what we see here also, a place of execution, just showing the power of the king. Picture it with me, if you will, an 80-year-old, gray-haired Daniel, probably having to be helped onto the rope to be lowered down into the den. Why? Because he wasn't going to not pray to his God. There he goes, down into the den, lowered down in. Here comes the stone, rolled on top and sealed, probably not a, any light shining forth into this den, pitch black in a den full of hungry lions. Man, that scares me just thinking about it, right? You can't see them. I imagine you can smell them and I imagine you can hear them And I imagine you're probably going to bump into him. Now, I want to read in the text 
What happened to Daniel in the lion's den? What did that night look like for Daniel? I would first imagine that he would fall on his knees and pray. I think that's a safe bet to say. We know as the text is going to say that God sent an angel to be with him. I picture Daniel in my own mind snuggling up to a lion and sleeping. That's probably just the old Sunday school pictures coming out in me that I saw growing up of Daniel kind of laying on the lion. But we don't hear much about Daniel's night. Instead, we hear about how the king's night went. And it wasn't too good. The king was fasting, which that should stand out if you're a king and you're fasting. No music, no dancing girls brought in, no concubines brought in to him, no sleep. He spent the night miserable. And that's what we hear about. We don't hear about Daniel's night, we hear about the king's night. I love what one commentator says about this. Speaking of Darius and this night with Daniel in the den of lions and and Darius up there struggling in his uh, posh palace, here's what he says. His helplessness, that is Darius, suggests to us that it is better to be a child of faith in a den of lions than a king in a palace without faith. (laughs) I love that. You see, life lived in God's will is always better than the disobedient pleasures of this life. We all need to hear that this morning. You young people here this morning, you especially need to hear this truth. Life lived in the will of God is always better than life spent doing what you want to do apart from concern for God. Being with the Lord and faithful with him is better if that leads you to a den of lions than being unfaithful and eating and drinking whatever you want. God's will might land you in a den of lions, but God will be present with you. Your faithfulness to the Lord might lead you to trouble. Your faithfulness to God might lead you to trouble in your life. But God promises to be with us in the storm. In your trials, trust in him. Lean on him. Take comfort in him in doing his will. Young people, I pray that you hear that this morning in your life and the direction with which you are living, seek to please the Lord and be faithful to him. This world holds out so many things for you of saying, this will make you happy. This this will bring you fulfillment. If you just seek after these things, then you will find joy in life. Please, I beg you, listen. Being faithful to God will bring you joy in life. Being faithful to him will give you joy. Take it from an 80-year-old faithful man who'd rather pray than not pray and be sent into a den of lions. Well, this brings us to our fifth point, deliverance and destruction, verse 19 to 24, deliverance and destruction. First, let's read of deliverance, verse 19 to 23. Look at these verses with me. Then at daybreak, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. 
As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. You see how the king, he loved Daniel. He's crying out in a tone. I can't help but sing running. The king declared to Daniel, you can picture him running up and here he yells, oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? See the theme of deliverance reoccurring. Has, has he been able to deliver you? I can imagine he's, he's, I mean, he's all ears, right? He's listening. Is there going to be something? <laughs> then comes this voice. I love it. Oh, king, live forever, <laughs> right? Coming out of the den of lions. Verse 21, then Daniel said to the king, oh, king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. And then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Deliverance. Trusting in his God. See the emphasis of the text here. Of deliverance being repeated. Of serving God and living in obedience to God. Of trusting in God to save you, not trusting in the king who it looked like could save you. Daniel trusted in God and he was delivered. Daniel was not harmed because he was, quote, found blameless before God. You see, a child of God trusted in God to save him, remained obedient to God's word, and he was delivered. God protected his child. God protected the one dependent on him to save them. God saves the one who trusts in him, not in kings of this world. What a picture of deliverance. We also see this contrasted with a picture of destruction. Salvation and judgment always go together. I don't know why we didn't as a kid in Sunday school class have pictures of this other scene that are going to take place. It's kind of like David and Goliath. Nobody has a picture on a piece of paper of him chopping his head off and holding it there. But look at verse 24. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. You see, it obviously wasn't because the lions had lockjaw that Daniel was saved. No, the emphasis here is God had delivered him. Now, it was also known that the Medes and the Persians would not just punish a person who falsely accused others. This here is the law of the Medes and the Persians here coming they would actually do what we see here in this passage and they would punish the whole family. 
the spouse and the children and everybody, if you made a false accusation against somebody else, and this definitely was a deterrence to do so, right? If you did that, then you, your family, kids, if you had them, you would all be punished to death. And that's what we see here, this gruesome scene. It's a picture of judgment. It teaches us something important. It teaches us the theme of the great reversal. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who seek to destroy God and his people will themselves in the end ultimately be destroyed. Those who don't trust in Christ will not be saved from their sin but judged for an eternity in a real place called hell. Wherever there is salvation, there is always something that we are being saved from. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In a moment, we're gonna sing of this deliverance. Quote, now the curse of sin has no hold on me whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You see, yes, God is able to deliver. This fact becomes clear in our last point, the ending of the first half of this book of Daniel. We see this, another great confession made by a king. We see this in verse 25 and following. It says there, then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers, he rescues, he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth for who, for who has saved Daniel from the power, excuse me, he who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of, during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. Imagine how this faithful Jewish remnant in Babylon and now Medo-Persia would hear these words. This edict that went out to the people of the land from this king talking about their God. You think your hope, your hopometer would begin to rise on that when you heard this? Imagine how this would spur them on to live in obedience to God. Their hope in him, their hope to be in God, to trust in God and not kings to save them. To realize afresh God is the one who can deliver them. You see, this chapter and this account is like a paradigm for us. It's a paradigm, it's like a model an example of what happens to those who trust and hope in God. Now know this, maybe you're reading through this like I am and at first blush, blush you kind of read through this and you hear, well, he saved him because he was obedient. 
Does this mean that if we're obedient to God, we'll never be eaten by lions? It seems to say that upon first blush. You read it. He was faithful to God, therefore God saved him. No, this chapter is not teaching that God will always deliver you from the lions. Just read Hebrews chapter 11. Quote, some were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. Read Fox's Book of the Martyrs. The lion's mouths were not always shut. Early Christians were fed to them and were not spared. The point is not that God will keep you from martyrdom. The point is that God will deliver you and rescue you from the judgment to come. As God has done for Daniel, so also will he do for all who trust in him and live in obedience to him. God is able to deliver and rescue you from the judgment to come. God is able to save his people. God is able to save those who trust in the promises of God. The New Testament tells us, Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. God is able to save. God is able to deliver us. God is able to rescue us. And so if you are a sinner here this morning, trusting in your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, struggling with sin in your life, struggling to live in obedience to him, and maybe sometimes you lose heart in that, maybe sometimes you wonder in this battle, is it really worth it? Maybe if you're honest, you would just say that. Is it, is it really worth it to struggle and to fight against this sin in my life? Is it not easier just to, to give up in that and just seek to please myself? As these Jews would hear this in Babylon and Medo-Persia, so also may we hear it today. Listen, God is able to rescue and deliver those who are faithful to him. God is able to save. He's able to save us from this judgment of sin. He's able to save us from judgment to sin to a real place called hell that God will rescue us and redeem us from. Why? As the text says, for he is the living God. Daniel said, oh, king, live forever. He died. God's still living. God's still living. He is the living God. He endures forever. Same God they're praying to, same God we're praying to. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. We're still talking about it, right? God is still saving people. You can't destroy the kingdom of God. His dominion shall be to the end of the earth. Where is a place that God is not sovereign? Where is that land? Where is no sovereignville, right? There's no such place. Verse 27, he delivers and rescues that's the business that God is in. He's in the delivering business, the rescuing business, rescuing us from our sins. Take heart and courage in him. Trust in Christ. Oh, beloved, he is able to rescue and deliver. Hope in God. 
Keep on keeping on and live in obedience to him in your present circumstances this day. Realize afresh that God delivers and rescues his people. Serve this God. Worship this God. Live in obedience to this God. Be faithful children of God in our time of exile in Babylon. Remain faithful. His kingdom endures forever. His church will prevail. Trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of this text. We thank you for the man Daniel and his obedience to you. More than that, we thank you for the God that Daniel points us to. This God who is mighty to save and to redeem us from our sin. We praise you for who you are and what you've done. Father, would you encourage us from these words of scripture? Father, in our situations that we find ourselves in, you know them to a T. You know what we face right this very moment. Father, maybe someone is being convicted of their sin here this morning, that they are a sinner and they're not trusting in God to rescue them. Oh, Father, I pray that you would do your work through your Holy Spirit, that they would desire to trust in Jesus Christ as their savior. Trusting that Jesus died on the cross for their sin. Lord, I pray they simply believe that word in faith, trusting in Jesus Christ. Father, help us who follow you live in obedience to you. Lord, help us, encourage us and strengthen us to remain faithful in Babylon. That the name of God may be honored and gloried and praised. Whose name we pray, amen.